Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr. Special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. You can find Steve at steveazar.com. Don't forget to get your copy of Only One Shot. That's available at Amazon. That was written by VJ Trolio. And don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate everybody uh, who's been listening over the last couple of years, and it's been fun doing these podcasts. Today I've got a special guest, Joe LaCava. He has caddied on the PGA Tour since the mid-80s, excuse me. And uh, he's caddied for some great players. Ken Green, his cousin, was where he started. Fred Couples for 20 years. It's Davis Love, Justin Leonard. He's now been caddying for Tiger Woods. He's been around uh, many great places. He's got some great stories, got some Tiger stories, some Fred stories, uh, just some great stories from all the his experiences on the PGA Tour. I uh, can't wait for you all to get to know Joe a little bit better. And uh, let's get Joe on the line and, and see what he's got to say and get us some updates on what he's been up to and uh, what's going on uh, with Tiger Woods and the, the PGA Tour. Well, I'm excited for today's guest. It's Joe LaCava, my good friend. Joe, thanks uh, for taking some time being on the uh, podcast. Of course, Jimmy. We go a long ways back. I think maybe late 80s, so it's nice to reconnect and do this with you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, 30 years. I was just looking that up. I mean, it's unbelievable how time has, you know, just flown by. And I I work with your daughter, Lauren, at Golf Channel, and I always thought it was funny when I'd play in tournaments and I'd play with guys, uh, kids, and I was like, man, I'm getting old. But uh, it's it's really cool to kind of connect with her and, and keep up with you and everything. But what you been up to? Because you've been off for a while. What have you been doing these days? Well, before you said before that, it's funny you said the common denominator to all that is so we're getting old, Jimmy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, age is uh, going to keep going. Hey, I'm in my 60s, but you know what? You're only it's only a number, so we just kind of hang in there. I totally agree with that. I still feel 25. I, what have I been up to? I'll be honest with you, not a lot. You know, um, we'll probably hit on it later in the podcast. But going down to Florida in December for that PNC was certainly the highlight of the last few months. Um, you know, I'm basically just biding my time right now. You know, like everyone else, you know, wanting Tiger to come back sooner versus later. We all know it's going to be a while. So in the meantime, to be honest with you, I'm in Connecticut enjoying some family time. Uh, you know, I like to go to some games. So I went to a few giant games. I've won a few UConn women and men games, and I'll go to some Ranger games. So I find things to do, but there are times when I'm a little bit bored and stuff like that, especially as you know, you're starting to know anyways, working up here in Connecticut. The winters can be kind of long. Um, you know, I find little things to do here and there, a little work around the house, but not a lot. So you speaking of the Giants, we might as well go ahead and hit that subject. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what's the upcoming? I know you're a big Giants fan. Of course, I got to know Archie Manning. Of course, I'm an Eli fan. Uh, you know, what do you think for next season? I mean, we'll always talk about that at the end of the year. I wasn't going to call you and do the podcast during the season because I know how big a fan you are. No, no, you, you can always rough me up. I mean, the first text I get on Sunday afternoon is about 2, 2.30 when the game's already over. It's for some tiger. <laughs> You know, once when my team's down 17, now they're 17 to three. You know, not looking too good for your squad. Um, but you know, I can take it. Listen, when I grew up, they were the worst team in the league. Then we had a nice run there, and won four Super Bowls, went to five of them, and now they're back where they're not very good again. But you know, what do I think? The good news is they probably can't be worse than they have been the last couple of seasons. Um, I'm like you. You know, I don't know Eli very well. I know him a little bit. You know, tremendous guy, great guy. I've always been a big fan of his. Um, you know, he won his two Super Bowls. Can't complain about that. He was fantastic during those years. But uh, I think they're bringing in some right people, um, some younger guys. I love the GM, the fact that he's a young guy. He's actually, I think, a golfer. I read the bio on him. I think he's going to Scotland to play some golf. So um, maybe I'll get to know him a little bit along the way. But I think, you know, with the, with the fifth and seventh pick, and I think they may have nine picks overall, they should be able to do some damage in the drafts and hopefully start to build that offensive lineup a little bit. 
and, you know, give Jones a little bit of time and give Saquon, you know, some holes to run through. And then I think the defense is halfway decent. So if we get the offense kind of going, I think we'll be fine next year. I, I don't think we're playoff bound, but I think we'll see some improvement and maybe be in the hunt to win the division. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Who's your favorite? I mean, always you've had so many greats up there. Who's your favorite quarterback of all time for Giants? You know, that's easy. I mean, I think that's a pretty easy one. It's got to be Eli. Yeah. I mean, I respect Phil Sims and the fact that you know, I say he won one and a half because we were, I think, 10 and 0 the second season when he got hurt and Hostetler actually was in the Super Bowl. But Phil Sims was tremendous. But you know, my favorite quarterback for the Giants is definitely Eli Manning. Yeah, he's, uh, that Manning family's been amazing. And they've got a, a nephew, Arch, trying to make a deci- decision uh, where he's going to go. I mean, he's the next Manning in line. It's just amazing to see how that's uh, transpired. But tell us a little bit about your growing up, because uh, we know you as, you know, out there caddying and everything, but what was it like growing up? Did you play different sports? And uh, what was it like growing up being Joe LaCava? You know, just a regular guy from, you know, small town in Connecticut, you know, uh, you know, two, two parents that were very hardworking, um, you know, didn't make a lot of money, probably a lower middle-class family. But, um, you know, they worked their butts off for us, you know, four kids total, so there wasn't a lot to go around. But, um, you know, I did play sports. You know, I played baseball. I played basketball. Um, I played a little bit of football. Just through high school, I was a college-bound kind of player. Um, and I picked up golf um, between eighth and ninth grade. My dad took me out for my first round, and I was okay at it. I'm still very okay at it, not very good at it. But <laughs> it, happened, it, it really just so happened the high school I went to, you know, the team was actually decent, but, you know, if you could break – 81 or 82, you know, you could play the one or two man. So I actually switched from baseball to golf going into high school. And I, I think my best sport was probably baseball, so it's hard to give that up. But I really got the golf bug, like I said, between eighth and ninth grade. And the fact that I could play one or two man as a freshman on the varsity team was appealing to me. And so I played a lot of golf in high school along with some basketball and football. So you, um, so you gave up. you gave up the sports you loved. How hard was that? Because I mean, you love baseball. I mean, how how tough was that to do that? You know, it wasn't easy. Like I said, I wasn't I wasn't going to Major League Baseball. Trust me. But I was okay at baseball. And I was a pitcher and you know first base and third base and kind of thing. So you know, positions where you're very involved it wasn't like you're playing right field, not getting any action. Um, so it was tough to, to give that up because that was the sport most guys our age started pretty early in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was probably playing that since maybe second or third grade or whatever it might have been. So it wasn't easy to give it up. But like I said, uh, you know, my dad liking golf, uh, I don't say it was easy to play golf, but the fact that I was okay at it, I think that made it easier. And then some of my best friends that I'm still in contact with today played on that golf team. So I made a lot of good friends throughout golf, too. So that was kind of a fun deal. Yeah, it's amazing the friendships you make in golf and you keep those for life. Because you can play golf forever. can't really play baseball forever or a lot of those other sports. That's the beauty of it. Did you caddy growing up, or how did you get into caddying? Because you uh, went to work for your cousin Ken Green in 1987. How did you get into caddying? Did you do that growing up at all? You know, I, I didn't do a lot of caddying growing up. You know, we I played golf at this place called Midtown CC, where there was no caddy program or anything like that. It was just a little nine-hole course. Um, occasionally at a club championship or a member guest, some guys would prefer to walk, or maybe I think they just didn't have enough carts. So I would caddy two or three times a year on big weekends. And I enjoyed it more because as a kid, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, it was good money back then. It was cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did enjoy those weekends, but it was never something I grew up thinking I'm going to caddy for the rest of my life, so on and so forth. Um, I was fortunate, like you said, my cousin Ken Green brought me out there in 87. But prior to that, he would allow me to caddy in the Westchester Classic 
during the summer, I would take a week off from my summer job through high school and college, and I would work that week at Westchester, and I was just toting the bag. I wasn't doing anything at all caddy-wise, but I loved it. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the fact that you know my own cousin was playing a tour event. Uh, he always seemed to play halfway decent there, lost one year in a playoff, and I think when he lost that year in a playoff, that's when I really got hooked when I started working for him full-time. I think it was 1988, mm-hmm. and um, that's when I kind of got the bug because that was when I got the sense of you know, a guy possibly winning and the thrilling is flowing and so on and so forth. So, again, not a big caddy background growing up. Didn't, didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of those clubs around Connecticut. I think there is now, but back then it wasn't a big caddy program. Um, but the, for me, it's all about the competition and the fact that I love golf. So I think that's what drew me to the caddying side of it. Yeah, and you love sports. You love competing. What was that first win like when you were on the bag? What, can you remember that? I know you remember it, but remember those emotions and what that was like uh, when you got that first win caddying on the uh, PJ Tour? It was amazing. I mean, you know, I tell people, you know, there's no, there's no, yeah, as you know, I mean, you won several tournaments in your career and you won a big one, I think, the Tour Championship. The feeling is incredible. I mean, as a cat, I can't imagine what the player must be going through. Uh, but to get that first one in, in 1988 with Ken Green, and, you know, the, the best part about the, the good news, bad news is, the good news is uh, he won a tournament. The bad news is we get a lot of time to celebrate because he won the following week as well. He went yeah. back to back in 1988. So that doesn't happen very often back in those days. Guys do it now because, I don't know why, because, but um, it didn't happen a lot back then. But to win two weeks in a row after a year and a half of not winning with Ken was, was just awesome. And one of my favorite stories with Ken is in 1988, he had a chance to win the Greensboro Classic. Played great all week, got to the 72nd hole, and he hit it 20, 25 feet below the hole. And all he had to do was two putt for par. He ends up three putt. And I remember to this day, and it was 1988, that we're driving out to the cart to go to a playoff hole, and he was so distraught because he's such a great putter and a great short game, and he did everything he was supposed to do on that hole. Hit it down the right side, hit it 20 feet below the hole. He left the putt about two and a half feet short and missed it. And he just couldn't get his head wrapped around the fact that he felt like he blew the tournament versus, listen, I kept trying to tell him on a cart right out, you can still win this thing. You can still win this thing. It's not over. Who cares if you win in a playoff versus winning in regulation? He ends up bulking the hole, does not win. I think Sandy Lyle beat him in a playoff. I see him three days later down to Florida for him to go start practicing again. And he says to me at the time, he says to me, I promise you we will win that tournament next year. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's a year from now. You just played well. You're still emotional. You're still hot about it, so on and so forth. Guys, by witness, fast forward a year later to 1989, we get there. Obviously, he's comfortable with the golf course because he almost won the previous year. Mm-hmm. He's been playing okay in 89. He hasn't been playing great. And he goes on to win the golf tournament. And I tell people, you know, I've worked for, for Fred, obviously, all those years in Tiger. They've done some amazing things. But the fact that he was so determined for a year and this paid down so much, that he did that, obviously, like I said, he's comfortable with the golf course, but more on the fact that he blew it the year before and this, just that desire was eating at him to win the following year, and I think he just did it with more guts than anything else. Yeah, and for folks, uh, he went five times on the PGA Tour. Uh, he was a heck of a player, and he was. That, I think that was the thing. His mentally was tough to, to do that. I mean, to, to, I think to be tough to come back there and just you have that nightmare of what I just did a year before because it sticks with you. I remember three-putting at Tucson, and it stuck with me for months. And Sissy finally right. just said, well, you know, you could sit here and feel sorry for yourself and stay up all night <laughs> worrying about it, or you can get back and get on the horse that just threw you off. And, you know, sometimes you just got to be told the truth. Uh, right and, and and we do we beat ourselves up as players sometimes and that's what 
that's the caddy player relationship I think that's so important. And you knew when the, the when do you find the it's always tough. It's a timing thing to say something like that driving back in the cart. I mean, is that just over time you learn when your player to, to make a comment? Hey, you still in this? You didn't lose. We have another opportunity to win because Scotty Scheffler just did it. You know, he missed a short putt at Phoenix, and uh, you know he wins in the playoff. You know, it was still another opportunity. It's not that he lost one. Right, you, you hit it right on the head. I mean, everyone's different. Obviously, you got to read the guy. You know, in Ken's case, you know, we grew up together, so I know him pretty well. And you know, maybe I have the advantage of you know being a cousin and not being afraid afraid to say something. But in this fact, I could just tell that he was just beaten down in the fact that he really felt like he blew it, which is surprising to me at the time. So I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, I understand just three, but nobody wants to be in a playoff. You had the thing basically won, but you know what? You can still win the thing. And, you know, the cart ride wasn't a very long cart ride. I was in the back of the cart. He was in the front. I could just tell he was distraught. But I tried my hardest for three or four minutes. He hit it in the left rock, hit it in the front bunker, splashed it out to 10 to 12 feet. And as you know, he's got a great short game. So mm-hmm. every shot that he was, was very mediocre on that playoff hole, Sandy Lyle, I believe, made a routine par, and he ends up losing, and that was, that was it. Um, so we'll probably get into that later in the podcast. But you've got to read your guy. Um, you know, part of my – I think part of what – has made me last as long as I've lasted is, you know, I'm not afraid to speak my mind, and I always kind of think I'm right, which, you know, a lot of players think they're right, a lot of caddies think they're right, and everyone thinks they're right in life. But for me, I, I go to, like, the ninth degree with that. Um, so I'm always I'm always going to plead my case, and I'm going to give it my all, and I'm always going to be involved in the game. And like I said, when it's time to encourage someone, I'm certainly going to do that. When it's time to back off, I'll do that as well. Yeah, let's, let's just hit it while we're here. You know, say you're uh, – I threw it in there. I, I kind of gave you some questions and ideas. But say you're at 15 at Augusta, and you're with Tiger or Freddie or whoever you're caddying for, and he wants to hit, say, five iron, and you think it's a six. I mean, he's got the club. That takes some guts and, and determination to come up here and say, hey, I, I think it's it's less club. And you got water short. I mean, is that something you've always been like? You know, you've got a – you're definitely a believer. Because I think for me, when my caddy, as long as you were 100% committed to what your decision was, then I'm not wishy-washy. Right. The big thing is is there's that doubt. Like, I think it's a six. What You just have to say it's a six. Well, you're 100% right. You know, like you said, you played long enough to know. Like I said, like I just kind of alluded to – you know, I'll plead my case. I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage because I feel like the player is thinking about, you know, other things other than the variables. Like, where's the wind? Um, you know, is it downhill? Is it uphill? How much is it? Like, back in our day, you didn't have all those measurements. So you kind of were guess- not guessing, but you had more of a feel mm-hmm. of what was going on. Um, so when we get to the ball, I'll always plead my case. I always have a, a club in mind. Um, I'm not just going to sit there and say, hey, it's seven iron. You know, we'll talk about it a little bit. What do you like this back and forth a little bit? And then, yeah, as you know, seven out of ten times, I think you, you know the guys are on the same page, and it's a pretty easy decision. It's those three other times that you want to be right when it's a little bit of indecision, or maybe he wants six and I'm thinking seven. Like I said, first thing I'll do is I'll plead my case and I'll tell him why, so he understands why. But if I read the fact that he's not comfortable with what I'm talking about, and he's not comfortable with the fact that I wanted a seven nine, he wants a six nine, then I got to back that back off because, like you said, I want him committed to the shot, thinking he's got the right club. That's going to me. That's going to lead to a much better swing. And whether it's the right club or not, it doesn't matter. I'd rather him put a good swing on it. We'll figure it out after that. But it's funny you mentioned 15 at Augusta because in 1992, when I worked for Fred, he won there. He hit it down the left side. He was kind of cruising, but he hadn't won the tournament yet. But he was in the lead, and we were behind those trees. And you can appreciate that. Mm -hmm. People listening have been to Augusta, but that's not that easy a shot. And so I'm sitting there, and he's in the you know the midst of winning his first major championship, and I'm begging him to lay up. 
because I just don't like the shot he's going to try to hit. And as you know, you know Fred very well. He can work the ball with the best of them. Yep. That's not the issue. I'm thinking to myself, you know, if you're trying to hit a you know a 40 or 50 yard hook, you know, Jim, how far that ball is going to go, how much further the ball is going to go when you're hooking it. It's just tough to gauge the distance. I wasn't worried about him hooking it around the tree. I was looking about him overhooking or landing on the back part of that green yep. going into the water on 16. So, unfortunately, I had a lot of negative thoughts because, like I said, it's hard to gauge that shot. And I want him to lay up. So we went back and forth probably for three minutes, it seemed like. Probably felt like three days, but it's probably three <laughs> minutes. And as it turns out, you know, he, he when I say he won out, he went with seven iron. Oh, you know, he hooked it, hit a beautiful shot. It was 15 feet left to the green, pin high. Very, very easy chip. He only made five, but at the same time, the fact that he wanted no part of that third shot. And again, I'm only two years into the gig, so I didn't think, you know, I, he didn't really tell me at the time he didn't want to hit that third shot off of that lie. But he told me after the fact. Yeah. And my thought is, I'm two years into this gig. I've seen you hit a million wedges from 80, 85 yards. I understand that's a much dicier shot than most shots. But I've seen you hit that shot. I know the hands you have. That was never thought in my mind. I didn't know until after the fact. You're just not, you're not comfortable in that particular situation. Maybe on a Thursday afternoon, different story. On Sunday afternoon, trying to win your first major, you want to know part of that wedge, 80-yard wedge shot. Yeah, people don't realize how much downhill that, that third shot is if you lay up. You almost have to lay up further back, and then you really kind of get in between clubs. But how long does it take you to figure out how far, you know, when you say when you first went to work for Fred, you knew what Ken was doing. How long does it take you to kind of figure out how far they're hitting it? Different situations are different, but uh, that's that's a skill in itself to figure out how far the guy actually carries a seven iron or whatever. How long does it take you? No, it, 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 you know, looking awfully for Pat Cantley. Uh, this past week at Liberty Nationals. So just give me an example. I was, you know, we did a play of nine old practices on Tuesday, a program on Wednesday when all the pins are in the middle of a green. So I didn't get that much of a feel for his distances, but you'd be surprised. You know, you're six, eight, ten, maybe maybe 18 holes in, and you got, you got the guy pretty well in terms of how far he gets. I mean, you're obviously running stuff down. You're taking in the wind in the factor and stuff like that. Um, you know, but a guy like Fred and Tiger all those years, I've been very spoiled, Jim, as you know. Those guys have fantastic distance control. Mm-hmm. You know, Tiger's you know Tiger's the greatest iron player of all time. I think Fred was probably top five of his time, if not even higher than that. Always was around first or second, third in greens and regulation. So, you know, these guys have a lot of God-given talent, and they can you know control their distances better than most people, and they can work it both ways. At least back in the day when the ball would let you do that. Um, so, you know, so like I said, spoiled is a good word. It's been pretty easy for me in terms of you know. Uh, deciding what clubs to hit in certain situations because they have such great distance control. Uh, but it doesn't take very long. And then, like you said, when it comes to game time or stuff like that, coming down to crunch time, it's different. And maybe we'll hit on that you know, later in the podcast, but i got a couple stories about Tiger when his adrenaline gets going and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Well, you know, while we're talking, you know, what's it like? But say you got a guy with that adrenaline. I mean, I kind of know, but a lot of people listen. I've got a lot of kids that listen, a lot of parents that listen. Uh, college coaches and all that, and they, and they, you know, adrenaline is a big part of it. Uh, you know, tell us those stories with Tiger with some adrenaline, because uh, right, he could get going, uh, and he he's amazing. I, I, I played with him when he's an amateur. I played with him when he was ter- first term pro. I mean, he, I, I'm not ever going to second guess him again. <laughs> no, I don't get anyone sorry, at this point, but. Um, <laughs> You know, the first little one that comes to mind with Tiger, this wasn't so much an adrenaline thing. This was more of a show-off thing. So the very first tournament I worked on was late 2011. We were at the Fries Tournament out in California. 
and he's going to go down and play there. He's going to play the Australian Open, and he's going to play the President's Cup because Fred had picked him back in like February to be on that team. This is when he'd been out of golf for a while and hadn't been playing much and was kind of coming over a couple injuries. And so anyways, the first 14 or 15 holes, we're having a good time, not doing much. I'm just kind of carrying the bag. He's doing his own thing. We get to this par three on the back, and he's got about 176 yards, and it's a two-tier green, so it's up on top in the back, and he's got 170 yards to the top and 176 to the hole. And this is the first time he asked me anything. Like I said, we're 15, 16 holes in. He says, can I get seven iron there? And I said, you can get it up top, but you can't get it to the hole. You know, I got to throw it out there. I'm only 15 holes in. I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, you know I'm, I, I, I'm not guessing because I have a little bit of an idea how far you can hit it. But at the same time, that was my best thought. So, you know, he hits this beautiful seven iron. You know, it draws about two yards, and it hits about 10 feet right of the hole, pin high. It's a beautiful shot, gorgeous-looking shot. And he... Just as he's grabbing the tee, he kind of looks up at me to the right, and he kind of gives me the look as if to say, "Don't ever tell me I can't get a seven iron to the hole." <laughs> with, 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 right, with a little bit of a wry smile on his face. So then, you know, six minutes later, we get up to the green, and I'm telling you, I, I you have to, you have to get a rope up. And I think it was about three inches short of pin high, and I look up at him. I said, "Well, it's not pin high," and you know, he he laughs. So I right right then I knew that we were along just fine because I could give it right back to him and he could laugh about himself like that. And I'm 15 holes in, and I tell him that maybe he gets mad and maybe he fires me that day. I don't know, but he laughed and we got along great after that. Um, but my first example of you know of adrenaline flowing when he's trying to win a golf tournament was at the uh, 2012 uh, Memorial Tournament. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm only five or six tournaments into this thing with, with Tiger. He had won earlier that year at Bay Hill, but you know he wins that tournament in his sleep. So he was kind of cruising the victory, not a lot of pressure moments coming down the stretch, and he won pretty easily in 2012. So when we get to Memorial Tournament, we get to the 16th hole is when he chips in, which everyone remembers the chip in. But we get to 17, and he hits a five-foot off the tee. It's very firm and fast that year, and it's hot out. And he's got 192 yards of that kind of that back right center pin. And he hits a nine-iron pin high of about 15 feet. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we both thought it was a nine iron. We knew he could step on it and not worry about it going over the green. But still, the fact that he hit, you know, a nine iron from 192 yards. Now, you know the whole, you know, the downhill wide, yeah. the downhill top, you know, all the factors people miss anyway. Of course, the first text I get is from Fred, my old boss. He goes, Are you kidding me? He goes, 192 nine iron. He goes, You got to be telling these guys nine irons, you got to be in six iron. I yeah. No, Fred, I'm telling you, get a nine iron going back and forth. So that was my first example of him having the drone going, trying to win a tournament. So we get to the 18th hole now. And so we hit, this is before they move the tee back for the President's Cup. So it's a two iron out there, and he's got 178 yards to the back left pin on the Sunday Pennant Memorial. And we got a little right-to-left helping wind. And he says to me, and again, this is, you know, this is six, maybe six, seven tournaments into this guy's career that I'm working for the guy. And I give him all the numbers, and he says to me, what do you like? And I said, well, hang on, I got a question for you. And I remember the look he gave me as if to say, are you kidding me? Because, you know, I kind of hired you to just tell me what you're thinking, and now you got a question for me when I'm trying to win the tournament. <laughs> and all this is going through my head. I'm being like, oh, my God, if I just blown this job, am I going to get fired after this round? And so he says, all right, what do, you, he says, what do you got? I said, well, what do you feel like you need to make here? And he says to me, well, what's the situation? And I asked Barry to come off 18 because we were three or four groups in front of the leaders. And I said, you have a two-shot lead over Sabo, meaning Rory Sabatini, mm-hmm. and he's through 15, which is the par five. So he's got three holes left. we got one hole left. you got a two-shot lead over Rory Sabatini. I'm thinking to myself, 
you know, Parr's going to do it. That's what I'm thinking. But Tiger being Tiger, he says, well, two shots is not enough. I, I need to make a birdie here. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, that wasn't really what I was expecting because I need to make a three here. So then I say, so I say, well, I like nine iron it. Because my first thought was if you need to make a three, it's an eight iron in order to get it back there and make a three. But I changed my mind and say nine iron because I go back to what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, okay, you know, you just need to make four. I think nine iron leaves you below that shelf. You might have a 25-footer up and over the shelf. You're probably not going to make it, but at the same time, you're going to make par, and you're certainly not going to hit over the green with a nine iron. So he takes his nine iron, hits it back in his stance, and hits this beautiful tight draw, same kind of shot that he hit in California I was telling you about. You know, it's drawing maybe five yards. He starts at, you know, kind of 30 feet right of the hole, draws four or five yards, beautiful shot. And I'm thinking the whole time it's solid and it's everything else, but there's no way it can be up top. And then, you know, sure enough, he hits it up top, 22 feet right of the hole, beautiful looking shot. And then, you know, he pours in this 22-footer, as you know, very fast putt coming down the hill with a lot of break right to left, and he rolls this thing in like it was a one-footer. <laughs> and so, I, so, you know, that's when I turned. I didn't say anything out loud. I said to myself, man, you know, I, this is going to work out okay. I'm going to make a lot of money working for this guy. But that was just, that, that was just the cases of, you know, adrenaline going, hitting a 9 iron 192, and then the next whole 178 was probably equivalent to 192. I mean, what goes through what, – what are the emotions that are you're running through? I mean, because he's trying to win a tournament. I mean, you seem calm and collective. I mean, no big deal. I mean, what's going through your mind at that time? If he's got adrenaline, you have to have some adrenaline too, don't you? I definitely have adrenaline. I, you know, like I said, I kind of hit on you know, what was going through my mind, the fact that, you know, listen, I've seen this from afar. And we played a couple, you know, rounds of uh, President's Cups with Fred when I was working for Fred with Tiger, and I've seen it up close and I've seen it in person. I haven't seen a lot of rounds coming down the stretch because Tiger was kind of at the end of his career when um, Tiger was going through his heyday in the early 2000s. So I would see it from afar. You know, of course, I'd peek over on the rain and see him hit balls, I and mean, we all watch the highlights of the remaining shots. But to see it up close and personal like that, a memorial, um, was pretty amazing. Like I said, Bay Hill's kind of an automatic thing for him, and I know he's done well at Memorial, but to see him hit some of the shots that he hit coming down the stretch and the way he closed things and the mindset of having to make a three on that hole and making a three, I mean, as you know, there are not many threes made on that last hole. No. Certainly not in the last few groups when you're trying to win the tournament. And like I said, he kind of did it matter-of-factly. Um, so, of course, your juices get going, and you're, and you're thinking to myself, wow, this is even better than I thought it was going to be. So... I mean, he's hit a bazillion great shots. What shot, since you've been on the bag with him, stands out the Tigers hit that really just, under pressure, really, really like, wow, I can't believe he just pulled that off. But, yeah, I can. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I hate to go to the most recent stuff, but, you know, the, the two shots he hit on 14 on the first two days at Augusta, he was over in the left trees with, you know, very little room to get it out of there. You know, he made a couple long putts, which turned into birdies. Um, but just to see those shots and then pull them off. I saw it with Fred. They can all do it, but some guys would just assume pitch out and they see these little holes and stuff like that. But if I had to pick one shot that, again, this is, you know, this is really not what you're asking because you said kind of an awe. I've been in awe plenty of times with Tiger, but um, when he steps up on that 17th hole at Augusta that Sunday and he just lasered that, that driver with about a one-foot cut on a hole where he hasn't driven it that well in the past and it's not his favorite driving hole, to hit that shot, once he hit that shot, people said, when do you think it was over? I said, well, I don't think it was over then, but at the same time when I saw him hit that shot, I said, okay, this is basically a done deal. Because like I said, this is a this is a problem shot for him in the past, but he had a shot. He actually hit it past Tony Fino, I'm only by a yard, but he hadn't not driven up all day. So, again, that goes back to the adrenaline thing. And people may say, well, it's Tiger Woods, a wild shot. Well, I said, maybe not a wild shot, but a shot that 
he pulled off under pressure that wasn't his favorite shot in the past. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be the greatest shot. It's just that shot stands out. I mean, that's the thing. Right. It doesn't necessarily the, the shot he hit out of the bunker to, you know, Glen Abbey that everybody talks about. It, it's like you said, that shot that he has struggled on that tee, and he hits it at the time, which kind of leads right. to, the, to the question and kind of why I started this podcast. But what separates that elite player like Tiger, Fred, or even an athlete from the rest? What separates them? What makes them, in your opinion, I've had a thousand different ways of it to be described, but what separates that elite player? And you've seen the best for years. Yeah, I mean, I'll go Fred first because Tiger's you know, a different animal, as we all know. I think with, with Fred, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, a ton of God-given talent, you know, talent through the roof. Um, you know, I think what separated him a little bit was he was one of the first guys, who, you know, as you know, you look kind of back in those days, he hit it so long, he would tear up the par fives. Mm-hmm. So to have the length and then to have the hands around the greens like Fred had, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate how good a hands he has. Bunker-wise, 60-yard pitch-wise, 80-yard pitch-wise, worked the ball both ways. Just his length alone allowed him to be a dominant player for a long time. You know, like I said, Tiger's a different animal. I mean, he's built like, you know, Kobe and Jordan, those guys, and the fact that he may not actually have as much talent as some of these other guys. But there's two things that's going to separate him, obviously the mind and the work ethic. Now, they all work hard. I'm not saying they don't. But back in the day, Tiger was the first guy to work 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Forget the gym stuff because that kind of came later. But he would work and work and work and work. He would find the weakest part of his game. He'd work on that for five, six, seven hours at a time. And then obviously the mindset. Uh, you know, I just, I, I saw people the same thing. I said, you know, I came kind of after the fact, after the heyday and stuff like that. But a couple tournaments come to mind. You know, one was the tour championship. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, he, yeah. led after the first, he led after the first round that day played with Ricky the second day, then he went after the second day, and then he played with Justin Rose, and he played with Rory McIlroy, and I played every single one of them down the stretch. But we would get to that putting green on Friday night, Saturday night, and his mindset was, he wouldn't say it, he would never say anything like that, but his mindset was almost as if this thing is over. I just got to basically get out of bed, show up the next day. I'm not saying it's going to be that easy, but the way I'm playing, the way I'm feeling, and I'm, I'm just better than these guys, and I'm going to beat these guys and I'm do whatever it takes. You know, I don't sense that with many other players. And the fact that once they get near that lead and smell it, no one's going to beat them. You know, they're just not going to happen. He did the same thing one time at the World Series of Golf in Akron. He shot 61 on that Friday. I don't even remember what he shot on Saturday, but it was one of the best rounds of golf I've ever seen in my life. He just tore that golf course apart. Like he would hit it down the left side of the fairway if the pin was on the right and vice versa. He would leave it 20 feet from the hole, be happy to two putt and get out of there. Because knowing 61, which is 900 on that golf course, Guys were never going to catch him on the weekend if he didn't screw up. Mm-hmm. And, he, and you can maybe say he played it safe. I wouldn't say it that way. I mean, he probably could have shot four or five shots lower than he did. He just didn't need to. He made all the right plays, did all the right shots. And then when the opportunities presented themselves, he would make a birdie on the par five or the shorter par fours or get a little more aggressive when he had a wedge in his hand. But he wasn't. He was smart enough not to try to go after him with a six or seven iron, that kind of stuff. So one of the greatest rounds I've ever seen him play in terms of just you know, being smart about things and just tearing the golf course apart but not having to go low. Right. That's the thing you, you mentioned. I mean, back at Memorial, two-shot lead, I went three. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, it, that's, that's the mindset. Yeah, and I think also as, as we talk about it, I mean, and we talk about, you know, the different methods of playing, he played aggressive when it was time, and he played probably more conservative. I call it smart, not conservative, but smart. He just – thought his way what's a 
you know, typical for – I mean, when you compare, Fred, everybody's different, but a preparation for these guys. Um, what's like? What's Tuesday like for these guys or the whole week of preparation? Uh, you know, some, a lot of the listeners don't know. What's a typical week for people, uh, you guys prepping for the week? Yeah, I mean, I, two different sides of it for me because I, I can give you pre-back and post-back with Tiger. Mm. So pre-back, pre-back would be a pretty big day on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. You know, the majors obviously do a little bit more work because you're playing new venues except for Augusta. So, but if you're playing an ordinary tournament, you know, when I started working for Tiger, he'd been around long enough where he didn't have to play a lot of golf holes on a Tuesday. He was certainly playing nine to get a feel for the golf course. He always knew he was going to play 18 on Wednesday with the Pro-Am. So, um, Tuesday was more about uh, you know a little bit more practice time, working on what wasn't working maybe, and like I said, playing nine holes just to get a little feel for the golf course because you can't pay as much attention to the program on Wednesday, but you're still being considered that a practice round. So Tuesday for him was more about practicing, getting the swing grooved, and working on the stuff that needed to be improved. Um, and then on a Wednesday, you're playing in the program, so you're certainly going to you know see the golf course, and then you do a little bit of practice after that. And then, you know, Thursday through Sunday, obviously, you know, with Tiger, like I said, pre-back, he would, you know, warm up for an hour, hour and a half before the round, like most of the guys. And then it would be anywhere from an hour to two hours after the round, depending on how he played and how he felt. And again, certainly more practice after the fact, um, after the round, pre-back. Now, post-back, different story. Can't play as much, can't practice as much as stuff like that. So all that's been cut down. Um, and again, before I even came on the bag, you know, nobody put more time in on the range, the short game, on a golf course than Tiger did. I mean, mm-hmm. he was second to none. And I think guys are now starting to do that more often because they see that. But, again, that's Tiger's theory. And that's his build. You know, if, if I'm not playing that great, you know what, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to find my swing. That's how I'm going to get it done. Do you think that's the biggest impact, some of the biggest impacts he had on these players is the way he prepared and what we see in the modern player now? hundred percent. I mean, you could talk about the gym and a lot of guys are doing that, keeping themselves in shape, which is part of it too. But, you know, I see all these guys still to this day kind of, you know, checking out Tiger's routine, what he does, you know, even before a round or after a round, um, you know, guys will kind of stand on the green if we're playing two, two holes and then watch where he's chipping and putting from and then do the same after the fact. So guys are definitely picking up on pieces of what Tiger's doing in preparation for sure. Well, you know, with Fred, different stories. I mean, I, you know, I always rough up Fred because I love him like a brother, but, with Fred, we'd never see the we'd never see the putting green before a tournament except for ten minutes before the first round on Thursday. <laughs> he knew where it was; he just didn't know how to get there. <laughs> Correct. He, he would walk over to the first tee, but he would never drop a ball and hit a couple putts. God forbid. <laughs> oh God! Well, that's the beauty. I mean, you got to be yourself. Uh, I hated to practice. I, I could play a thousand holes a day. I hated to practice, and they used to tease me that I spent more time talking on the range. My dad would get so mad at me because you're not even hitting any balls. I said, Ah, it's practice. You know, I want to play, and that's just how I prepared. Now, when it was time to practice, I did. If I had to work on something, it was something. I, and I, I always laugh that back when I was first on tour, we had to pay for balls, and I was so cheap, I didn't want to hit any balls. And then you'd see guys, you know, Tom Kite would collect all the balls that people wouldn't hit. So, I mean, we just kind of laugh. That's it was, you know, that's awesome. It was like $2 a bucket, and I said, that. it went to 3 I said, no, 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 I can't hit any balls. So, <laughs> it was, it was I'll figure out once I get That's perfect. I'll figure out once I get out there. I tell people a running joke with me. You know, the difference between working for Fred and Tiger. So let's just say we got an 8:25 tee time on a Thursday or whatever. You know, at 7:40, you know, Tiger's kind of you know starting his routine. He's in the middle of everything, and he's asking me, "Okay, where's the tee box going to be on 14? You know, what do you think we're going to hit on 12 off the tee? The wind's different today. You think it's driver on number six, stuff like that. Where's the pin on you know 14, stuff like that. So I'm going through that whole thing. So I kind of got to be on the ball on the range, Tiger." 
you know, if the same thing with Fred, if it's 745, we've got 825 tea time, he, you know, he's, he's worried about, he's asking me where we're going to eat that night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, like you said, everyone's built differently, and you just kind of got to adjust the things. So how, how has caddying changed for you? I mean, because I see a lot of guys out there walking, I and mean, you're prepared. Have you, you still go? Are they, I see some guys go out and walk before and do all that stuff. How has your job changed? You know, it's a million times different now than, than it was when you first started. How has, what have been some of the changes that you've seen over the years? Yeah, I think the biggest change for me is obviously the books. Um, I, know they're, I haven't been out there this year, so I know they're you know, sort of do, not doing away with it, but they're scaling back on the greens books and stuff like that and the yardage books. But, um, you know, back, you know, like you said, back in the 80s, there wasn't much of a yardage book. It was pretty basic, so you had to do a lot more work, which was great, which was fine. There's no such thing as a laser. So people always said to me, well, how, how did you figure out what was over the pond and stuff like that? I said, well, you weren't really guessing, but you were kind of like walking around the pond and stuff like that. It wasn't that easy. Um, some people use the wheel, so on and so forth. So, you know, the yardage book is night and day compared to what it was when I first started. And then, you know, as a caddy in general, you know, I think we're, we're, we're getting a lot of nice, you know, recognition, which, you know, we're not necessarily looking for, but it's still nice. Um, Accommodation-wise, things have gotten better. You know, things have gotten better at the golf courses for caddies. So we've come a long way since we have since the 80s, um, that's for sure. And, you know, like I said, obviously when Tiger got on the scene, we were able to make a nice living too as well. So, um, you know, those are the two biggest things, three biggest things that I've seen. Like I said, we're treated much better, and the yardage books have come a long ways. Um, in terms of, you know, preparation and stuff like that, I still like to walk the golf course. Um, I don't need quite as much of need with the yardage books because they're so spot on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not, now I'm walking the course more to get a feel for what the course is playing like that day and what may play like at the end of the week. So that's kind of my routine. I try to get out there on a Sunday or Monday before. I'll go over it pretty thoroughly. I'm not checking the numbers like I used to because I know the numbers are good in the book. I'm checking more, like I said, the lay of the land. And I'll send Tiger a very detailed text wherever he might be, probably in Florida, not, not quite at the event yet. So he can get a feel for what the, what the place is probably looking like in his mind and what it may look like come Thursday or Friday. Like, I'll tell him, listen, the forecast looks like this. I think it's going to get firm and fast. This is how it's going to play, the rough, the greens, how they're rolling, stuff like that. Um, so I do a lot of that. And in terms of, you know, walking the golf course, you know, game time, you know, we, we have to be outside the ropes, so it's kind of hard to see much, but mm-hmm. I'll do it at the British Open because we're allowed inside the ropes and you're up so early, and I just love that tournament. And I do the same thing at Augusta. I like to walk around and get a feel for the golf course, see how it's playing, see a couple shots come into the green, double-check a few pins, see where the, you know, where the uh, team markers are going to be on four and stuff like that. So a few things, but nothing crazy. Um, and like I said, you know, a lot of the guys now, we have a lot of equipment. They have the compasses. They have you know the, the slopes and stuff like that. So there's a lot of information in the book. So um, it's it's... There's more information that we can provide. Some guys may or may not want it. Natalia's still an old school guy. I've never given him, you know, a slope number or we we call the adjusted number. Mm-hmm. So when we're on a part three, you know, I may be giving him 178 total, and, and Joe Scott, I may be giving Ricky 171 because he's going to give him the adjusted number, total right. adjusted number. With Tiger still, like I said, I consider him old school at 46, where he's just going to do it in his mind. Okay, it's a half a club down, it's a half a club up, kind of thing. Yeah, that's it's it's the way he feels. Have he still plays by right. feel, even though equipment's, you know, gotten exactly. better and better and better. What's your? It's hard to do this. Favorite golf course you've caddied at? What's your favorite golf course? Well, I mean, the easy answer is going to be Augusta. Sure. And I think you know most most caddies will tell you that. I mean, you know, 
if you're only looking for one, I would say Augusta. I mean, I'll give you three or four. I love Riv. I love Memorial. And I love TPC. Yeah. Yeah, TPC's become so, such a – I went to tour school there. That's how I went to, to tour school. It's changed so much. Uh, it, it's it's one of those golf courses that even though it's not, you know, 7,500 yards long, it's still a shot maker's golf course. You have to think your way around. It's a lot less uh, – crazy things that happened there as in the past but it's just such a wonderful golf course it's one i think it's one of pete's best um uh, and you see the champions there's no slacks winning the players i mean there's good great players winning the players and that's a sign yeah you're not faking yeah you're not going to fake it around that place no and tour school was not much fun the, the worst tour school yeah. was when they played sawgrass across the street and tpc that was mm, that was a year before i got on and that would be a nightmare. But you've been part of a lot of Ryder Cups and President's Cups. Uh, what's that experience, and how has that changed over the years uh, compared to where it was and where it is now? And you've been part of a lot of them. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the best weeks of the year. You know, we always look forward to it. You know, if you're fortunate enough to work for it, it's only, you know, only 12 caddies, 12 players. So, obviously, it's a limited amount of guys, and I've been fortunate, like you said, to work a number of them. They're both fantastic tournaments. Um, same, kind of same thing as caddying. They've come a long ways in terms of how they treat us. You know, back in the day, you basically had to swim over to Europe, more or less, um, <laughs> and, and stayed in some pretty, pretty dumpy hotels. And now we're staying in the same hotels as the guys. You know, we're flying with them first class, um, and they give us gear, treating us very nicely. They pay us, so it's come a long ways in terms of that. And we, you know, and there's no better competition because you know you hit on earlier. We all at one time, I think, for the most part at least in our younger days, played team sports. And so you go from an individual sport all year, you know, you're trying to beat these guys week in and week out. And all, now all of a sudden you're a team. And I think it brings guys back to their maybe baseball days or college days of playing on a college team, golf team, um, or a football team or whatever it might be. So you have that team atmosphere and it's just awesome. Um, you know, the, the Ryder Cup probably is a little more exciting to, to work only because I think it's a little more of a heated rivalry. Because mm-hmm. I think back in the day, you know, a lot of those European players, you know, they didn't play over here. I mean, they played the majors and stuff like that, but none of them played here full time. None of them lived over here. So there was a little more animosity back in the day. And I think that still carries over to today. Whereas most of the guys on the president's cup team, a lot of them live over here, play the tour full time, same with the Europeans. So I think there's a little bit less of an edge. Um, but when it goes off, you know, there's, still take no prisoners. I mean, there's still a pretty heated rivalry, but the President's Cup, I think maybe because it's a little more lopsided with the U.S., I think once that gets a little closer, which I think it will, mm-hmm. um, I think that'll become a pretty good rivalry as well. But, I, I, you know, I think the last President's Cup that I worked when Tiger was the captain was one of my all-time favorites, the fact that he put so much into that event. You know, he was, every day he'd come out and you know, talk to me and tell me about you know, the texts they're sharing with the assistant captains and the guys who seem to appear with who. You know, I just, I've never seen that side of him where he really, really, really enjoyed that um, that role of being a captain. And then obviously in the playing well and, and made the team or got picked for the team and then obviously played well while being the captain, which is not that easy to do. And to his credit, I think he went 3-0. and Obviously, it helps playing with JT, of course. Mm-hmm. And that was another little talk we had. I said, listen, you know, I said, you know, you got to stop, you know, being the nice guy. In other words, you know, you can't play with someone that you're not that comfortable with or someone that maybe doesn't have as many partners. I said, why don't you pair yourself with a guy that you really like a lot, a.k.a. JT, and a guy that's obviously a very, very good player, and make a dominant team. I think that's how you'd be helping the team. 
versus being a nice guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's why he did it, but he got paired with JT. They went two and zero, and then he won his individual match as well. So, um, one of my favorite experiences of all time was working that that tournament down in Australia. And Tiger absolutely loved that golf course. So. To see him play well and to, to relish in that role of captain was just terrific. Yeah, he did a great job. And it is hard because you want to make everybody have to, happy as a captain. Right. But now you're playing because Hal Irwin was my uh, – you were I, it was the President's Cup captain and playing. Zinger was the assistant. So, I mean, it's very difficult because you're trying to – I think the American team now, these guys are a tighter-knit group because they all play together. They're kind of a, where the Europeans were probably 10 years ago. A lot of their veterans are getting in their early 40s and, and they're – not aging, but they're getting up there, and they're going to need some young guys to step up like the American team. And golf's in good hands. Uh, it's been it's been fun to watch. But you mentioned Tiger transform, transformation. I mean, when you look at him back at the PNC with Charlie, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I It was so much fun to see that part and that side of Tiger. You've seen it. But to see him take that role with Charlie, and Charlie's gotten a lot better in the last year or two. Uh, how much fun was that being out there watching? I watched one of the looks when Charlie hit that shot on 17. Sissy and I were watching it. She goes, look look at that look Joe just gave it, Charlie. It was just, it was priceless. And no, it, it was a terrific weekend. Um, you know, for, I'll, I'll hit on Tiger first. You know, I was pleasantly surprised. You know, we, we, we talked a decent amount, and I knew what was going on, but I was pleasantly surprised to see, you know, the power and the speed that he had and, you know, how tight his short game was. Um, you know, pleasantly surprised. You know, walking a different story in a long ways from, you know, playing golf at that level again in terms of the walking stuff. I think he had a press conference that people already know about that. But mm-hmm. um, the fact that, you know, Charlie played as well as he did on Sunday. And just for me, the enjoyment is, you know, all of us being dads and stuff, to see the enjoyment that Tiger had and how proud he was and how Charlie played. But forget the fact that he played well. We'll get to that yeah. in a minute. I think he's just, just proud of Charlie as a kid. He was a well-mannered kid. He's a nice kid. He'll have a little conversation with you. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where I've seen that develop more in him than anything else. If he wants to talk about golf and stuff like that. I love the fact that he's become, becoming just you know a young kid, and he's very nice to everyone. Um, I don't think – maybe he does. I don't think he knows how good he is or maybe can be. Um, but going to that 17th hole on the last day, they're all playing from the same tee markers. I tell people, here's what I'm amazed about the most. And my son was caring for Charlie, and we kind of looked at each other in amazement. Is, you know, he he knew in his mind the only way he could hit a close there is to hit a five iron up in the air. Mm-hmm. And so that's the shot he's got to hit. So the fact that a that he knew that he had to do that, and then b be able you know to to want to try to pull that shot off, and then to pull it off. All those combined to me was amazing for a kid at 12 years old. Just the IQ alone to know that you got to hit that kind of shot in order to stop because he's 12 years old. So the yeah. fire from like 70 yards, as you know, Jimmy, is coming in kind of not low and hot, but it's certainly not going to stop on a dime like like tour players do. Mm-hmm. And I think he gets that from the old man. Okay, well, I got to hit one up in the air, so this is going to make me get close, and then he pulled it off. And I remember looking at Charlie, I remember looking at Joe, and I remember looking at Tiger. I think we were all a little bit amazed at that. I'm sure Tiger's seen it when they played golf. I hadn't really seen that kind of a shot out of Charlie. So I was kind of in awe at that particular time. And, you know, forget the fact that he had two or three feet. That's obviously a bonus. To me, more amazing was the fact that he knew he had his dead shot and then he pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, that was the part. I was I was jumped out of my chair. We're sitting there going, I can't believe this kid just pulled this off. And it's what right. he was trying to do. It wasn't like it was a mistake. It's what he thought. Right. It's to see it, do it. I mean, that is. And that's got to be a lot of pressure. I remember I had Barbara Nicholas on the podcast and talking about, you know, Jackie and Gary playing – 
you know, under that shadow of Jack. I mean, it's got to be a lot of pressure. It looks like Tiger's doing a great job of, with, with Charlie, and, and, and that's a lot of pressure for a kid like that and expectations. I think that's, that's going to be a tough road to continue as he continues to get better. Yeah, I think as he gets better and older and is more under pressure, I might agree with you at 12, maybe not so much. But I will say this. I mean, he's, he's built like Tiger in the fact that nothing really seems to phase him. Um, you know, he, he knows he's good, but at the same time, he's not cocky at all. And, you know, this stuff doesn't bother him, at least at this age, it's not bothering at all. So I, I can see that going forward because I think Tiger was built the same way. Exactly. Well, I appreciate you spending some time up. What's next for you? I know we don't know when Tiger's going to come back. Uh, what you got going uh, ahead in the next few weeks or months? No, I don't, I, like I said, I'm doing the same thing. I'm, 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 you know, Tiger's been fortunate enough to ask me to come down to the Hall of Fame when he gets inducted in three or four weeks here. So I'll, I'll get to spend a little time with him down there. I'm going to go down there and do that. So that'll be fun. Um, and other than that, I'm just, like I said, I'm going to kind of bide my time. I'm hoping at some point, you know, Tiger's ready to start to get after it. Maybe I'll go down to Florida, spend a little time with him and help in any way that I can. You know, the last time he came back from the back surgery, you know, I think, you know, it, he wasn't real happy with me because I made him walk a couple rounds. <laughs> because, you know, it's pretty easy in a cart to yeah. get ready to play on and get on the tour and you got to start walking. So I'll probably do the same this time around. He may hate me for it, but I think in the long run that'll be a good thing. I don't know when that'll be. But when it is, I'm, I'm going to make myself available to go down there and, like I said, support them in any way that I can. But other than that, you know, no no big plans, just kind of, kind of lay low. Well, you know, that's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I know as little as I was playing, it's walking. It sounds basic, but walking and playing, I mean, that's a different animal, uh, especially when you've had the things go on that he's had on. But appreciate you spending some time with us, and I like to end the podcast, whether life or golf, you gotta, you may have only one shot, and you got to make it count. You've made it count. It's been fun catching up. And uh, good luck to you and Tiger, and uh, stay warm up there in Connecticut. Maybe get out and play some golf when it warms up again. Sounds good, Jimmy. Good. I appreciate it, and great talking with you. Here we go.